make sure all right let's let's go live My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas, and uh, I'll tell you what, I'm drinking, I'm drinking a Jack Daniels because I need a Jack Daniels. Um, it's nighttime over here, I'm Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Urine. What? What's that? I said, I'm glad that's not urine. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's nighttime over here, so I hope you don't mind if I if I have an, if I have a, a a whiskey or should I say a um a bourbon? What it's what it's just after two o'clock where you are, hey? Uh yes, that's correct. Whereabouts so are you? Maybe a little, a little early for me to join you, but um, <laughs> I'm in uh, Central New York, Syracuse. Oh, all right. Oh, New York. All right. Well, there we go. Yes. That's uh, that's that's where your mayor has caused so much havoc, or former mayor. Is he still well, the mayor? Uh, let, well, let me clarify. So New York is a, a quite a large state. In fact, it's bigger than most countries. Um, so New York City is about uh, 200 miles from me. Oh, so you're in the state. Sorry, I, not, the, not the city. Yes, that, that's okay. Yeah, no, I'm closer to Canada than to New York City. But, um, but I feel the effects, and I, I grew up there, and I, my family's still there. Okay. Well, uh, okay. Well, I'm quite far away from you, but yes, yes. The weird thing, Doc. I'm quite far away from you, but I feel like we're very closely connected in some weird kind of way because I've got lockdowns, you've got lockdowns, we've got curfews. I don't know if you've got curfews, but the whole world is following the same script, and it's very creepy. Extremely so. And that, you know, that is like one of the main important observations really is that, mm. you know, normally we, we all have our cultural differences and Australia and the U.S. actually are quite similar in many ways uh, culturally. Right. But we mm. still we do our things our own way. And uh, in this situation, in the pandemic, it's like the policies are the same in every country. And, you know, it's unprecedented. I, I can't think of any such occasion where every country agrees. I mean, go look at a united nations uh, meeting yeah. you know with all the countries they can't agree on anything so uh, it suggests you know that this is of course not business as usual and something very different is is occurring right now um in the united states it's it's not as severe as it has been in several places in australia that i've heard about um california and the west coast seems to be the worst and that's the only place i know of where they had a curfew I think people, by and large, did not follow it, and they didn't enforce it uh, very strongly. So, like, people haven't been arrested, for example, that I know of, except a few situations mm -hmm. when they, like, kept their restaurant open and refused to close after the police put up signs. And, you know, of course, I applaud efforts like that because yeah. that's 
Me too. The only thing that can change it. Um, what's weird though is that I've said before that, um, you know, it 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 can't possibly be just a coincidence. But then I'm called a conspiracy theorist. So let's just assume that 190 countries are all just doing the same thing by sheer coincidence. <laughs> right. Well, you know, you could do a, a probability calculation on that. And I'm sure it would be, you know, equivalent to winning the lottery. But <laughs> I mean, you know, by definition of conspiracy, right, which just means that more than one individual or entity mm. uh, enact a plan to carry out something. Right. So obviously the whole world being locked down is is conspiratorial mm. by, by definition. Every government act is is conspiratorial. Um, right. And here we have it between countries is mm. a conspiracy in this case, whereas if it's, you know, it could be between members of parliament. Right. But that's what the word really means. And it comes from the uh, roots, meaning to breathe together. Yeah. Um, so you sort of shot to, I want to say fame, but that might be the wrong word because uh, on, in terms of the establishment, you're pretty hated. Um, and, uh, and I think for all the right reasons, I mean, I'm doing this podcast right now on a dedicated server because I'm tired of, you know, censorship for exactly this. Um, and as a result, I think then that you are doing something right, uh, mainly because you, you're going against uh, the, the sort of group think, you know, you're actually thinking critically. And that's something that COVID also uh, killed, as it turns out. Well, I think it was uh, really already dead, uh, to be honest with you, unfortunately. But, um, you know, what really I'm trying to do is I'm trying to expose the inadequacies, um, false assumptions, false findings, and, and actually outright fraud in some cases of the scientific establishment. Mm. Because all of the new policies are all uh, in the form of technocratic decisions. Right. Where we have scientific authorities who are advising the governments and the governments are doing what they say. Right. That's one way to look at mm -hmm. what's happening right now. And this is based on science that's false. And even the scientific establishment itself, like specifically Professor Ioannidis at Stanford University, but many others, it's mm -hmm. his paper about that saying more than half of all published scientific papers are false. Right. And he explains why in this paper. It's one of the most highly cited papers. So this is really from mainstream academia. But what mainstream academia likes to do is acknowledge their inadequacies, but then keep the status quo. And I think I'm challenging the status quo. I'm saying, you know, we're not going to accept this science. We're not just going to point out that a lot of it's wrong. We're actually not going to allow our lives to be changed mm -hmm. by false science. And I want to like this. It, it's really a crazy time because I was recently in a discussion online in a, a local neighborhood group. And there was a very high ranking person, a dean of a graduate school um, teaching future scientists. And we were trying to discuss evidence uh, related to, you know, policies like masks and things like that. And this so-called scientist um, wrote the following 
Asking for proof of something is an unreasonable standard in science. So it's, it's just completely astonishing. This is what we have in the leadership positions in the academic scientific institutions saying that you don't need proof. Sheesh. I mean, how anti-scientific could that be? Well, could we, could we play with semantics and say that proof you can only use in mathematics? Well, you know, um, much of science is uh, uses mathematics to do exactly that very thing, <laughs> right? But there's, you know, there's um, there's proof of something, and then there's you know absolute proof of something. Yes. And there, in other words, there are standards, right? Even in a in a the court system, right? Uh, whether you think that provides justice or not, it still has rules about the degree of evidence that's mm. required. And sometimes you can't know, and so you make a decision based on you know, what's available. But uh, if you have to make a decision, like let's say your health is at risk and there's no known treatments that have been scientifically proven, well, you might still take your chance on one because there's certain death, you know, if you don't do that, mm. right? So, but in, mo in other cases there, you know, it's not a desperate situation. <laughs> Most cases are not. Mm. And, uh, you know, if we let the scientific um, establishment mislead us, then we will do things that that won't help and could be harmful. So it's really important to kind of establish, uh, you know, a certain degree of mm. proof in order to make decisions for our personal health and safety. Uh, well, before we get into the meat um, of the of the conversation, let's just quickly talk about you for a second. So, like, the one of the things I've seen leading up to this conversation uh, with you is. Well, he's he's a psychiatrist, you know. He's not qualified to speak on COVID, um, but you're more than a psychiatrist. <laughs> well, you know, we're all more than these labels, uh, which represent uh, a brief experience of our consciousness. And it would really be false to, you know, have to have everyone have a certain credential to speak about a certain thing because one of the fundamental reasons why there's so much uh, false uh, results and findings in science is because of this compartmentalization and, you know, specialization and subspecialization that people in one field don't have any idea what's going on in, in related fields that affect each other. Like even in psychiatry, for example, all of the treatments in psychiatry are, are drugs these days, right? And they're based on experiments done in brains and of animals. And uh, they don't actually look at that research or know how to evaluate it. Mm. Um, so if that research is not valid or doesn't really apply to the situation that they say that they see in their clinical experience, they'll never know. So it's really important that scientists and physicians um, develop the ability to look at a broad range of different scientific material. And if you understand the, the method of science, the philosophy of science to, you know, challenge a thesis um, to in order to validate it um, and understand some statistics, well, then, you, you know, you should really be able to uh, read almost any scientific paper mm. if as long as you translate some of the language that they use because they use a lot of specialized terms. But, you know, like I, I read sometimes read papers in 
chemistry and physics, uh, you know, just like I read in different areas of biology. And, and uh, I, I've done research in the laboratory. I've worked in the biotechnology industry. I've done epidemiology research. I've mm. published uh, research uh, related to mental health and the law. Um, so, you know, I've been a peer reviewer and, you know, all of that has prepared me to just be able to read scientific papers. And I believe that anyone can prepare themselves to do that work themselves and to look at some numbers on government websites to make opinions. Mm. And all of the concepts can actually be quite easily understood by anyone, you know, of average or better intelligence. Mm. Um, it's not really complicated. It's just made to appear complicated by a lot of fancy words and and uh, obfuscation, really. Well, I mean, if there's anybody who is more needed now um, in the medical fraternity, it's a psychiatrist because we are dealing with some serious mental problems. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this has become yeah. a cult. This is a, this this COVID thing is a cult. Um, you don't have to comment on that. I'm saying, <laughs> I think it's a cult. The way in which people tell me to put on a mask without any kind of thought mm. process, just just wear a mask. That's it. That, that's there's no conversation. Well, Jerm, listen. You you can actually look at it um, really as a, a scholarly way of looking at cults, because actually the field of forensic psychiatry. Uh, which uh, I specialized in actually deals with cult situations. In fact, sure. I've seen and met uh, survivors of the Jim Jones cult. Or I just one watched something about that the other night on Netflix. In it's incredible. Really? Yeah. It's and you know for the viewers out there who may not remember, that's the one where everyone drank the Kool Aid that mm. had cyanide, and did a mass suicide. But there are various elements actually that are quite similar right now. Um, and one of them is the initiation ritual. Um, and you could look at the mask wearing actually as part of an initiation ritual, mm. um, which is used in, in cults and occult groups as well, um, lots of purposes. Um, and what it does is it masks the identity to dissolve yourself from your old identity so that um, when you emerge, now you're part of something new, right? Like that group or that cult, for example. And uh, so there are elements like that. Also, the, the difficulty in having just a rational scientific um, or a rational discussion or debate with people about this issue, um, that it it's really n seems to be not possible mm. uh, with, with most people. That, you know, even if you say, okay, you know, hey, let's sit down and look at some evidence together. Here's the government website. You know, here's the peer-reviewed papers from the top journals. Uh, you know, let's talk about what it shows. Um, there's a complete unwillingness um, to look at this, even common sense things like, for example, you know, well, where are all of the dead people? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or uh, why are the hospitals empty? Have you noticed the hospitals are actually empty? Well, I'm not allowed uh, to go into a hospital. Yeah, but there are citizen journalists who have reported mm. on this, and there are hospital employees, and then there's all of the dance routines from mm. you know yes, nurses TikTok. and other staff. Yeah, so you know, I mean, it, it's if you just open up to looking at that, it's pretty easy to see. Oh my gosh, that doesn't mm. make one bit of sense. Um, but but when people can't even 
take that into consideration, you know, it suggests some level of, um, you know, manipulation of, of thinking and reason. Well, that's uh, exactly what I think is going on. But I mean, look, let's just go. Okay, so let's go. Let's horseshoe now back to the start. So uh, a lot of my audience know who you are. They've seen your videos pre and perhaps post censorship. Um, for, but for those, <laughs> but for those who don't know, uh, your position is quite unusual, uh, with, particularly when it comes to the virus itself. So I've had a number of of COVID experts, shall we say, from Professor Bhakti to uh, Dr. Mike Eden to even Judy Mikovits, um, and mm-hmm. not one of them has said what you are going to be talking about the 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 term exosome if if i've got it pronounced correctly is an interesting thing Um, i'm sure that you're going to chat about that i'd love to know obviously then what is covid19 and i'm guessing a good place to start is wuhan sure but let me just uh, make a small correction first because um you know the i definitely respect the work of those people you mentioned dr Mm. bhakti and yeaton um, and Dr. Mikovits. And, but Dr. Mikovits actually does agree with me about the current SARS-CoV-2 virus, that it has not been shown to an exist. Right. And yes. she's said that with me on a panel discussion. Yeah. We have a difference of agreement about some other viruses. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that's, you know, a little bit more complicated. Uh, but I don't believe the other uh, doctors have really considered the possibility of what I said or looked mm-hmm. at the primary mm-hmm. papers um, from this point of view, but I would certainly welcome an opportunity to have a discussion with them about it. And mm. if they can explain to me a different way to interpret it, I certainly would be like, I'm not emotionally attached to the truths that I've uncovered. It's mm. just, this is where the science has led me, <laughs> right, but right. I would be happy to change my mind because, you know, in the past, I fully believed that viruses cause illness and as a physician, I wrote lots of prescriptions for antibiotics and, you know, told my family that they had a virus and all of this kind of thing. It, but at that time, I also never looked at, well, what, how, what are the scientific experiments they, they've done to see, like, what, what viruses are and such? Mm. And it wasn't until I looked there, you know, which was really last February, that I said to myself, what the heck is this? Like these experiments don't show viruses. They they show essentially breakdown products of cells uh, because they create they don't like take, you know, from a sick person um, a body fluid or tissue and then purify out the virus from that and then show, oh, here's what the virus looks like and then take it apart and like analyze the constituents and sequence the RNA and things like that, like all other um, discoveries of organisms have been like that, right? You you know, when they discovered the jaguar, they took an actual jaguar, <laughs> mm. right? Observed it, mm. dissected it, um, you know, looked at the hairs and stuff under a microscope, right, to see what they could learn from it. So they, they never do that. Uh, with They've never done that with a virus. Um, instead, they take the body fluid, you know, which has all kinds of junk in it. It's basically what your body's getting rid of because you're sick, um, you know, and it's got all kinds of cells and bacteria and schmutz in there. And they put that in a in a cell culture with with kidney 
cells from a monkey and add some other toxic chemicals. And then they see that the cells in that culture start degrading like, like dying cells. And when cells have been observed to die, they put off all these particles. And one of the particles they put off is called exosomes, and there's a rich research around that, and they've been able to purify exosomes <laughs> mm. right directly out of people's bodies, like out of their blood or, or lung fluid even, I believe. Um, so then they point you know, an arrow to one of these particles, and they say, look, there's the virus. And you know, I said to myself, well, how do you know what that is? Like, you know that the particles are coming from the cell and the cells dying and there's no control experiment where they did everything the same but put the snot from a healthy person. Mm. Um, if they did that, they would actually also have the same, you know, things that they find. And so it was really just perplexing. Like, you know, mm. and I saw this for the current, you know, alleged virus at first. Um, and then I looked back in history. Yeah, well, well, let's do that quickly, if you, if, if you will, because there's, there's a wonderful video uh, presentation of yours that happens to still be on YouTube, and um, I'll, I'm sure someone in, my, in, my, in the comment section will, will link to that. Um, I think that that's a brilliant summary of, of, uh, of what COVID is. I mean, and, and you, start, you started off there by talking about the wet markets in Wuhan. I mean, that's kind of a good starting point, isn't it? Yeah, well, of course, because, you know, that's what the uh, official sources said is where, you know, the first cases uh, came from. Mm. Uh, oh, all right. Well, then but, but let's start there then, um, because that, that's, a, that's a good basis on what this entire pandemic is about. Something happened in Wuhan. I don't believe at all that there was some sort of virus that jumped from bats to humans because of, of those wet markets that are pretty disgusting. But as you yourself pointed out, it's quite likely that you could just get sick from wet markets, not necessarily a virus that suddenly, suddenly became identified. Well, well, of course. I mean, you know, yeah. okay, so, you know, in the first paper, they had something like, you know, nine or 12 people that had pneumonia in the hospital, right? And, you know, well, that happens every year. So it's... They somehow someone thought they had something in common that they all came from this market. But, you know, OK, well, so maybe there was some reason, like maybe they sprayed some disinfectants and all these people breathed it in. You know, maybe there was some kind of food poisoning that they got. Uh, you know, like if you saw pictures from that market, you'd see that they didn't weren't exactly super hygienic. They were like, mm. you know, parts of dead animals of all different varieties and blood everywhere. So it wouldn't be that surprising. You know, someone's whacking, you know, some bloody piece of meat with a, uh, a cleaver or something and it splashes up and it gets in people's nose and there and it turns out that animal was sick and the blood was, you know, toxic. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, not from a germ, but just from like, you know, a disease from basically rotting flesh. Yeah. And, okay. And uh, then, yeah. And then suddenly the know, Chinese government put out an official story and nobody really questioned it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think uh, Christian Drosten was uh, part of this mm. uh, process, too, because he developed this PCR primers that, yeah. without knowing anything about what was going on in China. 
by the way, just because he had them in a database and he said, well, maybe this is an opportunity to make money or, or something. And, um, you know, they just went from like, oh, there's a few people sick. Maybe we should, uh, you know, send some people to investigate the market and, you know, or like keep an eye on people and see if other people get sick. They immediately jumped to, oh, this must be a virus. And mm-hmm. they started doing some, ge- some genetic testing. And, uh, you know, the genetic testing is all, uh, it's all messed up. It's like, say there's a rumor of some new uh, species of bear. And then you, so, and, you know, so you look for a piece of a bear that you already know. And right, and then mm. and then they find they find a piece of something that looks like this piece of bear, but it's only eighty percent similar. And they say, "Oh, this is it. It's the same thing." Yeah. <laughs> and then, without any further proof, um, it's a really strange thing. But there was really no evidence whatsoever of any virus um, in any of these people. And the experiments that they'd done, you, you basically could show like do the, such an experiment with anyone who is sick and show this kind of a fake uh, or fabricated virus. But And it's just, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I, I, I interrupted you there. But look, something happened because all of a sudden, within a few weeks, a lot of people died in northern Italy. Now, I mean, if we go back a little bit on the, on the timeline, that was where now this whole thing kind of started that was outside of China. And it looked quite bad in the media well, if um, if you have a, a sudden rash of deaths in a certain r- specific geographic location, mm. it would have to be something related to that local area. If you have, you know, the way that they say, you know, a virus, basically they say it's spread around the world, right? There are cases everywhere. But we didn't see that everywhere. We only saw that in a few discrete places. Like even in the United States um, during that time period when uh, this happened in a few discrete places and by the way my home state of New York was one of them Um, so if you compare like New York to California New York had something like almost twice as much mortality I think as the prior year during uh, a six or eight week period not for the whole year and California which had the same rate of hospitalization and and, uh, testing uh, positive tests they had no Uh, increased mortality during the same time period. So how could that be possible if they're affected by the same virus? Uh, Because according to what they say, the virus determines the illness, not not any other factors. So what I think happened is that it's multifactorial and you have to look at each geographic area where there was a surge during that. And these surges really only occurred during that discrete time period of April and May. And uh, several people have done good Um, statistical analyses of these Um, but uh, like in New York I can speak about most easily because you know I know exactly what happened here but I suppose there would be different reasons um, for what happened in Italy or Argentina or those few discrete places where where they experienced this yeah I mean one of the things that was always quite strange was how this virus let me me just let me just add one thing to that because mm. this is a super super important point. Mm. The data on deaths 
right? That's what we call epidemiology. It's a, a field of sort of social science where you can monitor these effects on a population's health. And but there's a lot of difficulty in getting accurate numbers in the first place. Mm. And so you can't draw any conclusions about the cause of anything right. from these kind of numbers. Uh, other than big questions, like you could say, okay, if there's no excess deaths, then there's no new illness, right? Or there's no pandemic, right? Which is what we have for the aggregate year-long data for 2020. But in these certain discrete places, right, taken separately, you do find this during this discrete um, time period. So, but that doesn't tell you anything about what the explanation is. You have to look deeper to get at the explanation. You can only generate a hypothesis. But if it only occurred in discrete places, but there was evidence that whatever they say this virus was spread everywhere, then that basically tells you the hypothesis that those deaths were caused by a virus is not good. Yeah, <laughs> It's not a good hypothesis. You could throw it away. And uh, Judy Mikovits said on, on my podcast that uh, SARS-CoV-2 does not cause COVID. And I know that you would agree with that. And I must be quite honest. It's something that I have pondered for months. I haven't been able to wrap my head around it. And I'm hoping now, Dr. Andrew Kaufman, you, that you can put into fairly simple terms, what the heck is COVID-19? Well, I mean, why don't you tell me what it is? Okay, can I tell you what I think it is? And then, and then you, yeah. and then you uh, uh, correct me. I'm not entirely certain actually what it is because the symptoms seem to be literally everything. Um, on the CDC's website, it looks like flu. Um, in South Africa, exactly. in South Africa, flu wasn't recorded at all last year. It was just merely swapped uh, with uh, with COVID nineteen, and so it's supposedly a respiratory disease. Um, which is what influenza is, but I, I, I'm not a medical expert. I cannot tell you the, spe the specifics, but it looks the same. And I keep getting told by the media and posters up and billboards and air airports and everything that this is a deadly, uh, deadly virus. Um, and even me breathing is a problem. Uh, I mean, everything about this is, is apocalyptic, but the numbers don't show right. that. Exactly. No, no. I know that there's a major, uh, you know, uh, propaganda campaign out there. Mm. Um, so, but none of that is really based on scientific evidence. So I, I really just don't pay too close attention other than to know what kind of games that they're playing or what might intent might be um, behind it. But in order to say that you have an illness or a, a disease that's distinct from what we already know, there has to be something novel about it that you can reliably demonstrate. Otherwise, how do you know what is that versus what is something that we already had? Oh, but, and I'll but, give but, you but, a, but a PCR test, sorry, Doc, but a PCR test, that tells you what it is, surely. Well, it, uh, a PCR test is not actually a test, really. A PCR is a manufacturing technique for DNA, mm. but it's developed in such a way that it's it's completely meaningless because even if you say that it accurately shows the presence or absence of a certain piece of genetic material 
right, which they say that it shows genetic material that's allegedly from a virus. Mm. So even if it can show that genetic material, you would first have to show that that genetic material came from something that was causing an illness. And there have been no experiments that have shown that. Mm. So even if the PCR was an accurate test and way to do this, there's no way to know what it's representing if it's positive. So you basically can just toss it out the window. I mean, to develop a diagnostic test for something, you have to first know what the something is. And then you have to prove that that's what it is. And then that proof would be like a gold standard. Like, for example, you have a a cancerous tumor, right? How do you diagnose that? Well, you have to actually get a piece of the tissue, a biopsy, and look under the microscope to see what it is. And that test is, you know, is the gold standard. But there might be another test, like people might know of a test called a PSA test for a prostate. And, you know, men over 50 get this test to see if they might have prostate cancer. But this test is different because it doesn't show prostate cancer directly. So it has to be, you know, compared to a biopsy um, to say how accurate is it. And it's actually not very accurate, but it's um, that's why it's used as a screening test and not for diagnosis. But it can't be used at all without that testing. And the PCR and antibody tests that they have for this alleged COVID, they've never been tested like that. They don't even have a known error rate because there's never been a gold standard to actually show an illness. Mm. So really it's just built all on a false assumption and is meaningless. And even the, uh, well, go ahead. You, no, 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 no. Ask no, no, carry on. So there's no way to define it. There's, in fact, there's also no specific autopsy finding. There's mm. no specific symptom. Mm. Um, there's nothing to characterize an illness that sets it apart as distinct from illnesses in the past. And then combine that with the fact that you overall have no excess mortality well, then you have actually no prima facie evidence of a new illness at all. Uh, Dr. Dennis Rancourt from Canada was uh, was on my podcast about a week or two ago, and he said that the that there are excess deaths around the world, but they're caused by lockdown and other mitigation measures and not from uh, the disease or the illness. Right. Well, I would agree with that in terms of in those discrete geographic areas. Mm-hmm. And actually... Um, he's one of the researchers that uh, uh, whose analysis helped me realize some of this. So, so you know, so I agree. Like during those time periods in some areas, like in New York, for example, there was excess death there, but in the United States overall, there wasn't. Right, right, right. Um, so that's that's what I'm saying. I say in the world over, there was an excess death, mm. like which would, if a pandemic means it's worldwide. Otherwise, if it's in a local area, it's called an epidemic. Yes. Right. And the World Health Organization's declaration that it was a pandemic is what set off all the lockdown policies. And it's very clear that the lockdown policies are the main thing responsible for any excess deaths and, and also other deaths, because there was I think there was deaths were caused by many different things, even though there wasn't an overall excess. There was a shift, like, for mm-hmm. example, there was a major increase in suicides and drug overdoses in the United States uh, from prior years. 
Yeah, I mean, and of course, our very good friend Neil Ferguson, uh, who isn't guilty of anything, uh, you know, other than ridiculous, absolute ridiculous uh, projections, um, which have shown to be utter nonsense. Uh, but I, I want to come back to what is COVID then, because um, I know that you've outlined it in a very interesting way. You've basically covered all grounds. It, it can literally be anything <laughs> from <laughs> from from uh, respiratory uh, disease like flu to cancer to even to even potentially 5G. Um, have I got it right? You've you've covered just about everything, which is which. Well, well, you know, it depends exactly what you're talking about. So, you know, let's remember that mm. COVID-19 is the name that they give of this illness, which is undefined and, you know, really no evidence for. So if you're saying, you know, what are they recording on the death certificates that, you know, what's the real cause of death in those cases? Well, you know, you could just look at the secondary cause and like the CDC puts this data that, you know, almost all of them, they have cancer, heart disease, strokes, you know, pneumonia, essentially the same things that people have always died from. But things are very different because there's very limited access to hospital and medical care because most hospitals are staying empty, like mm. to give the appearance that they're full. Uh, they're keeping people away. And also people don't want to go to the hospital because they're afraid of getting, you know, COVID or something. Um so then you have all the economic hardship from the lockdown policies. And, you know, that that is long known to have actually like they even can calculate or estimate the death toll from from those things. Like for a certain drop in employment, you have a certain increased mortality. And, you know, some of those will be through like suicide and, and drug abuse and things like that, which, you know, we're seeing a, a recent study in the United States that almost doubling. Uh, of those numbers uh, during 2020. So, part part of your online discussions, and we haven't even got there, and this is what I'm trying to uh, segue to, uh, is is exosomes and what exactly is this? Because uh, I, I'm not medically inclined, so you need to you need to speak to me like I'm five years old. <laughs> that's that's totally all right. So, um, and and it actually it really is kind of that simple, right? So if you know that like um, what what biologists say about our bodies is that they're organized into tiny little compartments called cells, right? And these are microscopic and they all uh, function somewhat independently, but also with each other, right? They have a nucleus with DNA and lots of other things called mm -hmm. organelles and carry out all their functions. Well, one of the things that uh, is a, something that they do is called exocytosis, which basically means that they pop out some part of their cell off their membrane and make a little vesicle or like an exosome is just one type of these. And uh, it's kind of like if you, let's say you had a water balloon and um, imagine if a, uh, you like squeezed it in the middle and it made like two, then you were able to actually separate them. And it would they would stay intact. It's just like that. You can actually see bubble like soap bubbles doing this um, in a solution, and that that's exocytosis. And by the way, little particles can also uh, go the other direction and merge with the the cell membrane, or so they say, and then come inside the cell. Okay. So exosomes are simply a name for one of these little types of particles that comes off the cell 
and and it's very very tiny like um 100 to 200 nanometers roughly which is a, a billionth of a meter so it's not something that you can see with a regular light microscope you have to have a special electron microscope to even be able to see it and interestingly it's the same exact size shape and form as they say viruses are that cause disease so in other words, uh, they're, in their own papers, they say it's indistinguishable from virus particles, that they don't know how to separate them from each other. But about 30 years ago, this branch of research started looking at, you know, trying to understand what the function of exosomes are. And they don't know uh, fully yet, but they think it's for communication at a distance. Like locally, cells talk to each other. But in order to, like, basically send a package or a telegram, uh, you know, a letter uh, across the country, you know, from, like, the kidney to the big toe or something like that, they would uh, send off this little package of genetic information, and it would be like a letter and tell the toe, you know, to do something that would help the body. And it turns out that our cells put out a lot of these little particles when we are sick. And it can be caused by all these different stressful things like uh, being exposed to poisons, including antibiotics, uh, radiation, psychological mm -hmm. stress, if we have an acute infection, an asthma attack, all these things. And when they do the experiments with viruses that they say is, is isolation of a virus, although they don't use the meaning of the word isolate to separate, um, they have their own special meaning for virologists only. Um, they create a cell culture under stress with antibiotics that would induce exosomes because there's other lab experiments they show put antibiotics with, with cell culture you get exosomes and then they show little particles on the photograph but they're not separated they're just budding off the cell or near the cell and they put an arrow and they say that's the virus well mm. I just pointed out how do they know that's not an exosome? Because they know there are exosomes there because they created the conditions. And exosomes look exactly the same. Like you can find papers where they show pictures of exosomes and ones with the viruses, and you can't, you can't tell the difference. Um, and I showed that in my presentation. So, so that's what I realized is how do you know those aren't just exosomes? Um, in other words, there's no evidence of a virus. They're just particles of a cell that's in trouble, that, that's unhealthy. So I just want to I want to make sure I'm following you. So the uh, exosome, they can see, but the virus, they can't. Well, no, no. I mean, according to the theory of what a virus particle is, right, it can be it can be seen on an electron microscope, right? But they both Just look like identical. Yes, essentially, yes. You, in other words, by looking at them, you can't tell the difference. Right, right, right. Um, and is it possible that, I don't know, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of like the origin then of a virus. How would it then have started? Would it have escaped somewhere? Uh, would it have broken I'm away? I'm not sure what you mean. What do you mean? Well, I, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around what, because we, we're talking about infinitely small um I don't, I, I don't even know what to call it because it's neither alive nor dead. It's just like information that that's well, you could just refer to it as a, a particle. A particle. Okay. That that would be accurate. 
because uh, you know that's that's it's been described there in the science scientific and it, literature, and it has no good purpose. Uh, it's it's destructive. Well, are you are you are you asking like what is it that the medical scientific yes. establishment says a virus is? Yes, yes, yes. That's what I'm doing. Well, what they say is that it's a sort of type of organism that can't live on its own and doesn't exhibit the normal properties of a living organism, like being able to reproduce or um, move, like locomotion, things like that. But that it's essentially everywhere in the environment and in organisms. And it uh, sometimes, the, some viruses can actually become invasive or aggressive and they invade our cells, make millions of copies of themselves by hijacking our machinery, mm. and then explode the cells and scatter, you know, a million fold. And then each one of those particles infects another cell and does the same thing. Right. And that's how it basically kills you. So, according to that model, for example, if you. Um, took tissue from like the lungs of someone who died from viral pneumonia where essentially those particles just killed so many of your lung cells that you died right you should be able to look under an electron microscope and just see wall-to-wall virus particles because right that in order to, to conquer every cell and each cell makes millions of them right they would just be everywhere but they there's no studies like that where they show that um, and they've n- never been separated out of someone who died or an organism that died of one of these illnesses. Um, they only have uh, what they say is the proof is that they take dying tissue from an animal or a person with a disease mm. and put it in a foreign cell culture. And then those cells, uh, because of they and then add toxic chemicals and then the cells of the foreign cell culture, not even humans, right? In most cases, uh, monkey cells, Mm. those cells die. And then they say, ha, that's because they died of the virus. But how do they know? How do they know what what caused those cells to die? They put in several toxic things, (laughs) right? Right. Rotting tissue, antibiotics, Mm. uh, calf serum, you know, all these things. So how do they know what killed it? They don't do a control experiment to, no. to, to separate those things out. They don't, there's no way to identify the virus on a, on the microscope because it looks like other particles. They don't have like a specific stain or a label that they, that only, you know, sh- uh, show, uh, turns only virus particles a different color. So they never actually showed that there is such a thing as a viral particle that causes illness like not no studies have shown it and what's interesting is almost a year ago i had professor john nichols from hong kong university um on my podcast and this was now before we even had lockdown this was right back um in the early stages and and he said that under an electron microscope it was in uh, it was impossible to tell the difference between any um coronavirus he says they all look the same which I found very interesting because then how did how, how did they know then that SARS-CoV-2 was even a thing if if it was identical under an electron microscope? They you... they had the belief that it was a thing before mm. there was any evidence, and then no evidence materialized, but the belief stayed. 
Mm. I mean, you can find papers where they actually say that this virus caused the illness and they give a reference and then you go to the reference and it doesn't say that anywhere in the reference. They're essentially just making it up. I show this in a couple of different presentations. So it's like a rumor that gets spread around and it's repeated so many times that it's believed. And that, that's the situation that we have. Okay, but look, something is going on because right now uh, everybody that I know knows somebody now that's been on a ventilator or in ICU or has died. Mm-hmm. And this is not quite the same as previous years. Now, my instinctive reaction is that, well, it's because we've had 10 months of very artificial government behavior um, imposed on us from forcing me to wear a mask whenever I leave the house to uh, creating mass unemployment, which is stressful, to a bunch of things, right? But I can't prove any of those things. All I know is that there is a weird thing happening in the healthcare sector. What's going on? like I think you have to um, look at how people think and understand things in order to see why people are uh, thinking that that's the case. Mm. And it's because, um, you know, our brains are very, very powerful. Like look how much computing power it takes to beat a human in chess, right? (laughs) It's like the most powerful computer in the world, right? Um, And the reason is because we're very, very good at pattern recognition. And in fact, we're we're so good at it that we often see patterns where there are none or we're subjected to biases that lead us to see false patterns. Yeah. And because of the uh, initial scare tactics and severe measures that have not really let up um, and it's been going on for a long time. So now we have experience of a year, a full year under our belt that we've been paying very, very close attention to everyone's health status Mm. over that year. And it's always through the lens of pandemic because it's affecting every aspect of our life. I mean, you can't leave your house without seeing people with surgical masks and other kinds. Mm. So it's constantly on your mind. But ask yourself, are these people like, I mean, I've heard of a few as well, and these people were all elderly, and they all had chronic illnesses and there was nothing unique um, about what the information I was given that would say it was different from any other you know, year or anything like that. But there, there are differences in how the healthcare system is working. Um, you know, and there, right now there is um, a wave of deaths going around from the vaccine, like especially in nursing homes. Um, so, but that that's uh, only a very recent phenomenon. Yeah. So I wasn't really, um, you know, I'm not denying that that uh, we hadn't really talked about that yet. And perhaps an audit in the next two, three, four, five years will show, uh, you know, will reveal some conclusions that that people are making now to be incorrect. Well, you know, like you made a really good point about the influenza deaths, and it's not just in your country. It's um, in, in the United States and many other places too that they just there were suddenly in this year like no flu deaths right and uh, so obviously they just called those COVID this year because if there was a new disease it wouldn't make an old disease disappear you know mm, it would run concurrently <laughs> right? 
you know, right? Just like, you know, um, you know, heart, deaths from heart disease also like went down considerably. And how, how could a virus cure heart disease? Um, I have you know. I have largely ignored my comments, so I I, I I really want to carry on chatting with you if you don't mind holding on a few minutes longer because I've got a bunch of com- questions that I need to okay. throw at you, but they're but they're a little bit randomised because they come from various points of the conversation. So I apologise for that. But uh, someone over here says, okay, I'm just going to read it. He says this is plain bullshit. The experts already took the virus, analysed and dissected the virus. And decoded and decoded the coronavirus. Don't you remember the SARS virus analysis many years earlier, or are you avoiding facts? Well, I mean, you haven't really provided any any science, and I'm not sure uh, what decoding a virus uh, means. means. Uh, but uh, you know, you, you'd have to actually look at the papers, and uh, mm. I've done an in detail analysis actually of a paper on the original SARS. Uh, virus from 2003 from Nature, um, and in that essentially they did not prove their claims at all through their mm-hmm. experiments. And so, if you want to look at that, it's called the Rooster in the River of Rats. Um, it's on my LBRY channel and uh, and my website, and that will explain you know the reasoning uh, where I show that these things are not uh, what they claim. So, you know, it's hard to kind of address that. But, you know, saying something is bullshit is not really an argument that actually sidesteps a real argument. And, you know, the big the the big underlying um, uh, way you could describe what the problem I have is that in order to show you have a thing that's never been discovered, that's a material thing, right, a physical thing, like like they say a virus is, you have to actually have that thing. Yeah, right. Until you have it by itself, you, you know, then what's the proof that it that it exists right. at all? And when they write papers that say isolation of this virus, they're not using that definition where it means you have it by itself. They they have a process that where they've actually inverted the meaning completely of that word. And so, you know, if anyone has scientific evidence of a paper mm. where they have actually, by the common definition, like to separate from everything else, isolated a viral particle so that you could see an image from a microscope where all you see are viral particles, and then they can analyze it chemically and sequence the genetic material, I would change my mind instantly and I'll, I'll come on your show and every other show and, and mm. give an apology and a retraction. But I... But no scientist has presented that to me, and I've scoured the published research uh, as best I can. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, talking about definitions, even the WHO changed the definition of pandemic, I think in 2009. Well, you know, also like there have been, you know, diagnoses that were cancer that suddenly were changed to not cancer. Uh, so, you know, uh, many of these are, are uh, certainly uh, subject to change over time within reason. But you're mm. talking about things that require more of judgment. Mm. Um, I'm talking about actually making something the opposite of what Correct. it really means. But another question for you. Um, if it's not an actual pandemic, why are there so many sick people with similar symptoms concurrently? That happens every flu season. I mean, you know, like 
the the only difference this year is that everybody is paying close attention to what happens in all the hospitals. Mm. But you know, like I've I, I've been a, a doctor for a while. I'm I'm not practicing allopathic medicine right now for the last few months, but I've you know had experiences in all hospitals, many states, mental hospitals, general hospitals, academic hospitals, rural community, everything, mm. and um. There's nothing out of the ordinary except that those hospitals are empty. Mm. I've never seen empty hospitals in my career. Um, usually I had to often wait for a bed to open up to admit a patient. So that's the thing that's really different. And that doesn't make any sense at all if we have more people who are sick. Right. So you need to like look at, at some, not just you know like what you should observe during a real pandemic is people burying their kin in their backyard because the cemeteries are full. Right. That's what happened in 1918. Not that, yeah, you heard that someone's relative in a nursing home was on a ventilator. That that happens every year. Yeah, and what was interesting also, I, I, I mean, I, I do try and read the literature. I will be honest, I do struggle, but I do try. And I, I did attempt uh, Fauci's um, review of the various pandemics and I mean if I remember correctly he overwhelmingly found that bacterial pneumonia was one of the overarching um, killers in a new uh, in numerous uh, uh, pandemics all the way up to Hong Kong I believe in that paper he partially attributed that to mask wearing as well I am not you certain that? I, I I'm yeah, I recall the stories about that, but perhaps it's not true. I don't know. I do know that when I when I looked up that 1918 story that uh, masks were uh, used a lot across the U.S., but I, I don't know about Hong Kong and other and other regions. Right. No, I don't know. And it was also for a, a limited period of time, mm. but it was uh, very much a, a parallel to the current situation. But, you know, it's also it's a it's really difficult to talk about the the true causes, mm. uh, you know, Spanish flu um, because it's so long ago. But there are several um, really well done studies of contagion that come out of that era and where whatever the illness was, they uh, tried to have people give it to each other by taking their secretions like cough up phlegm and mm. and sneeze out snot and they even took tears and gave it to healthy subjects um and they couldn't make anyone sick and they did it with animals too like i know for sure horses mm. um you know where they had the horses they put a bag over their whole nose to collect snot for like several hours <laughs> and uh and then they like put that on a healthy horse <laughs> <laughs> to breathe in all that stuff and they didn't they didn't get sick cuz uh, cuz animals also get flu interestingly what so someone was asking here um when was your light bulb moment and i and i i, I want to expand on that because that's an interesting question because it feels it feels as though we're in a we're in some sort of movie uh it really is i mean when i visited my folks not so long ago they remember the moon landing and they remember big events and the Vietnam War and my mom said you know nothing has ever been as weird as this last year in in her lifespan and it's almost as though we're in a losing battle when we are trying to just seem sane and someone asked now in the comments when was your light bulb moment and how do you how do you 
turn on that light switch for other people around you? Well, you know, that is the uh, million dollar question, right? Mm. Um, you know, I had more than one light bulb uh, go off, but there was, you know, a specific one about this virus issue. And um, it, it was, uh, you know, a really interesting moment because I had uh, seen uh, Tom Cowan talk and I was trying to figure out exactly how to interpret these virus papers. I knew they didn't show a purified virus, which was what I expected. And, um, you know, but I'm like, what are they what are they seeing on these microscope images, really? And uh, so Tom gave this uh, little talk that was to a closed audience, but someone sent it to me and um, he mentioned exosomes. And and I had read about exosomes back when I was at MIT. And it just that it seemed to me when I heard that word that it was something of significance and I almost thought that it, I'm like, that must be what they're seeing. Mm. And so I started scouring the literature, learning everything I could about exosomes and comparing it. And that's how I uh, came up with that original presentation. So that was really when I started to really understand what these experiments represent and how they don't show what, what they're saying, that they're part of that half of all published studies that are false. And um, and then, you know, that was obviously of utmost importance. In mm. fact, it's the central issue to understanding the true nature of this pandemic situation, that it's all built on an untruth, a falsity. Well, I've got a question from Carla, and she says, uh, please, can you ask uh, the doctor about herd immunity? Because now that's obviously quite connected to what you're talking about. Well, herd immunity is a, a nice theory, but there's no evidence to back it up. And it seems that the scientific authorities like to keep changing the definition of it or when it's achieved or how it's achieved or what it is. Um, but it, it's never been demonstrated in a population. It's purely a theoretical construct. And it's, of course, based on this assumption of viruses causing disease. And if that's not established, underneath as an underlying principle, then, you know, you can't even really look at the immune system that way. So mm. it's just something I think that, like, I think it was developed actually to use as a way to um, intimidate people who didn't want to vaccinate their children by saying that they're preventing vaccinated children from achieving herd immunity. Right? Yeah. I, I, that's, that's my personal opinion. But um, it, it's really not a scientific concept, and all of the scientific writing about it is really based on conjecture. There's never been, uh, you know, a population that's demonstrated it. And um, you're talking about humans. What about animals? Same thing. Same thing. I mean, I, I'm not aware of it. You know, like, so first you'd have to show that there's some, you know, germ that actually causes the illness that you would be immune from mm. right and then you'd have to have a test for that and and then you know demonstrate that in a population to see if you know i mean it could have it could be through natural observation or um you know through a, a controlled experiment but you have to have something like that not a computer model or right. a theoretical idea um i've got a couple more questions Joe, if you don't mind um 
just cut me short if you do mind <laughs> um but there's a lot of activity in the comments um and i'm just quickly trying to find now this one question um oh right it says yeah the hospitals in my hometown were packed with COVID-19 patients. ICU beds were full due to COVID-19. I know that for a fact. Now, I mean, how do you respond to that? That seems very anecdotal. Now, it's it's quite possibly true that the ICUs were full. Well, you know, I mean, it, it sort of depends on what they were doing and where they were doing. Like in my home state of New York, they were um, skipping all the normal steps of giving oxygen and putting extra people on ventilators. So you had... Mm more people than usual on ventilators, but not because these people, like normally, you know, with a ventilator, you, the person is about to die, you know, or they can't breathe on their own. They're totally exhausted mm. from breathing problems and they're about to stop breathing, you know, and that's when you put them on the ventilator. Uh, many times they're unconscious. But in this case, they took people who are wide awake um, and had to sedate and paralyze them and put them on the ventilator. So it's hard to judge mm. by that, but you know, I don't know. I need some specific, more specific sure. information. Like yeah. What, and was this hospital full, you know, for the, from what date to what date? What, you know, what capacity was it at compared to its normal capacity? Mm. What about the uh, hospital surrounding? Like in New York, they made a big deal about this one hospital, Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, being, you know, overloaded and such. Um, but the thing is, it, it's a tiny hospital. New York City has huge hospitals with like 5,000 beds. This was like a three or 400 bed little hospital in the suburbs. All these other big hospitals were not, they were half empty. So why, you know, and I, they had people going to NYU hospitals showing that there was no one there. Mm. So why was one little hospital in the suburbs packed, but yet the big, huge hospitals that serve the area, which are, you know, the better hospitals, mm. <laughs> right, according to the consumers why are they empty so it's hard to say without looking at the bigger picture you know what to explain one particular but i do know like um uh in australia for example not because i there's plenty of evidence in the u.s but someone that i was uh um uh, personally associated with whose child had a sports injury and and needed an x-ray they had to like coerce the security and the administration to get into a hospital in a major metropolitan area. And they said there was not one person in the radiology department getting a test. Now that is, you know, it never ever happens because the radiology equipment is really expensive. It has to keep and going. Yeah. You have to keep going and generating revenue just to pay for it, you know, then not even to make a profit. So, you know, how do you explain that? Because yeah. having a busy hospital, that's a common thing. But having an empty radiology department, that never happens. <laughs> and our, our hospitals here in South Africa, particularly in the private sector, um, tend to run on about 80% ICU capacity uh, just so that they can keep turning some sort of profit. So, I mean, you know, getting them to 100% is not a very difficult thing. I mean, it, absolutely. It, yeah, it could literally just be a few beds. I've got another question here. Um, regarding the, the theory of virology or virology, how did the idea come about that viral particles only contain part of their genome and that their complete genome is somewhere out in nature? I'm not even familiar with that theory, actually. 
my understanding was that the particles contain the whole genome, but I will tell you that they've never taken a genome out of a particle because mm. they've never had the particles by themselves, uh, except with exosomes, they have done that. So they which, have the uh, technology. Yeah. yeah, they like purified out the exosome particles and took their genetic material out and characterized it. We've gone over and time. Sure. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. I'm worried about you, but but do carry on. Oh, well, I just just want to finish that they've actually found exosomes that have, as well as human sequences, also viral sequences. Wow. What they say are viral sequences, but coming from our own cell, uh, not causing disease, but being part of us. All right. So someone was was alluding to a bigger comment and i'm going to just ask you outright do, sure. vir do viruses exist so in the terms of are there particles from the environment that invade us and cause disease or come from other organisms invade us and cause disease no there's there are no such thing wow okay and is that are we just playing with words could it be a parasite well you know Parasites, like things like worms, for example, or malaria, I mean, those things are known to cause disease. Um, and, uh, you know, if you look at the success of things like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, you know, those, those drugs are for parasites. When I mean parasites, I'm talking about things like worms, not, not viruses, not, not things that are, you can't see and have never been seen, but worms actually have been seen. Right. They uh, it's well characterized that you can find worms in organisms causing disease, um, including humans. Um, so like ivermectin is a worm anti worm drug. And yet it's they've been used for, you know, this thing that they, they they're saying it's covid, but really it's just a pneumonia um, or you could use other words. You could say call it a viral pneumonia, a typical pneumonia, whatever. Um, but it's, you know, the same thing that's always been around and of course they never thought to use a drug like that because it it doesn't work on viruses it works on worms but out of desperation some people just tried everything and they noticed these drugs work and i think this is the reason they covered that up because it's been covered up in the u.s it's many doctors are prevented from prescribing it like pharmacies won't fill it or the state licensing authority issued a directive and so this is because they don't want you to know that actually parasites are involved in disease. Things like worms. But sorry, I can't let you go on this cliffhanger. If <laughs> if viruses don't exist, what is going on? I mean, in, there are entire departments in hospitals, in laboratories, in yeah. books, virology. Um, if what is what is all of that then? Well, in the United States, um, the vaccine industry is a $60 billion a year industry, and vaccines are almost all directed at viruses. There's no treatment, by the way, or a cure for any virus. There's some toxic drugs that they say are a treatment, but there's, there's no real cure for any of these viruses, right? So they keep doing research. It's a huge area where there's tons of money coming in. Uh, and they're justifying mostly, you know, related to vaccines. That's the biggest area of revenue, um, just like with the current situation um, and yeah. the testing. 
but you know i you know i think that's a large part of what it's about and that's why most of the of the people who are involved but don't really know haven't really looked at things you know there there's job opportunities you know it's a way to make a living and um it and it has the appearance that you're doing you know a good service okay but sorry i'm my if you um if you found if you realize that that um really an illness like pneumonia is related to having excess toxicity in your body Mm. which worms come in opportunistically and other parasites when there's toxicity because they they kind of live in it just like if you let the trash back up in your yard parasites would come right you get roaches rats crows Mm. Mm. right all those kinds of things so that's what parasites are in your body and when you build up too much junk, which comes from a lot of places, at some point parasites uh, take up residence and they can cause an acute illness like pneumonia. And the thing is, if that was known about, there are many natural remedies that are very effective mm. uh, for that, that you don't need drugs like even ivermectin. Uh, it may be effective, but you don't need it. it. It has toxicities. You have to get it from a drug company. You could actually take a pine tree and take the sap out and distill that at home and make turpentine and you could use that or you could uh, grow cumin and take the seeds and and press it into an oil and use that to treat it or if you're in India you could use a spice called asafoetida right and all these things are inexpensive and readily available and they would also be effective in treating people with uh, an acute you know seasonal pneumonia well what is flu then and I would say it's the same exact thing. Okay. How do you differentiate the flu from, you know, COVID or or from uh, another viral pneumonia? There's no accurate test. You just have the those PCRs, but they don't actually mean anything. So it's all really the same illness. Okay, but now like you mentioned the, the truth sorry, about. Go on, go on. The, well, I'm just going to say the truth about what causes illness is really very very. Uh, simplified compared to what they say that there's thousands of causes and most things we don't know what causes them there's really only a few things that cause illness and it's essentially toxicity, malnutrition and trauma sure and so every illness can be explained in in, uh, in those categories except perhaps for some rare genetic anomalies sorry you're talking about the origin though because I mean uh, back, like yeah, getting them, about the, the, root, the root cause the root cause so like pneumonia you're saying isn't necessarily from a virus well there's no evidence to support that it's from a virus so mm. it would have to be from some other cause um, I don't and, you know have the I don't have pictures of lungs with worms in them that I can show you either because no one has done that research right. but the fact that all of the treatments that address parasites are effective well that's pretty strong evidence that you're dealing with parasites yeah right why would it, ivermectin work okay but now i'm in south africa and <laughs> i'm in south africa and one of the big big viruses as you might know is the hi virus i mean this is hi uh, you v- mean hiv yeah well, I mean, you can't say HIV virus, isn't that right? Because uh, then you're saying the HIV well, virus. Well, yeah, usually, you're right, you're right. There's a lot of uh, redundancy. 
but I mean, does I mean I, I know that Judy Mikovits is um, she she noted that on my show that <laughs> HIV does not cause AIDS, and so did um, another doctor who was on my show two weeks ago. Uh, uh, um, ah, I've just gone blank now. I'm so sorry, but he he worked with the South African government uh, during our AIDS pandemic. And he argues that HIV doesn't cause AIDS. In fact, he says the HIV or the HIV virus doesn't even exist other than in a laboratory. That now I'm I'm saying that because it it's tying yeah, into what you're that. saying. Yeah, well no, it's it's absolutely true. And it's not so it's not just SARS-CoV two and SARS-CoV one, it's HIV and in fact it's every virus that they say causes a disease. Not one of them has actually been properly isolated, purified, and shown to exist, let alone been shown to be the cause of an illness. So I know this is like, it goes very, very deep, and yeah. this is why it's so difficult for people to even look at it all. You know, and I, I, it wasn't easy for me to get there either. David Resnick, that's his name, sorry. He was on my show a few weeks ago. Uh, I don't know if you know him. Yes. Uh, yes, uh, he, we were supposed to be speaking at a conference together a couple of months ago, but uh, he uh, was unable to make it. But we have some contacts in common, and I've actually spoken to several people involved in the AIDS dissident movement, including uh, one of my local friends who actually was in South Africa on that same uh, mission. Yeah, and apparently that, those, uh, those videos were never released to the public that David Resnick um, attended. Um, where they where they spoke about this, but that's a different conversation. A lot of things, right? Mm. A lot of things were suppressed. I mean, they had scheduled this big debate with some of the you know proponents of mm. the virus versus the other side, and and it was going to you know for the purpose of the South African government, and it was being televised you know worldwide, and the scientists uh, in support of HIV didn't show up. Yeah, <laughs> it was sabotaged. Um. Okay, look, I, I suppose I've got to let you go because I've I've kept you for longer than than I promised. I'm going to have to get you back on in the near future because there's just just so much activity going on in the comments, um, and uh, I can't keep up with it. I can't multitask and do you know focus on you and on the comments. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, that's an impossible task. I don't even attempt it myself. But um, but you know, if you distill like uh, a few of what you feel are the best. And most representative questions. Um, okay, uh, you know, me, I'd be happy. To, let me uh, just come back read, those. Yeah, I'll just read one more. One more. Just one more. One last one. All right, this will be the last one. Okay, we'll do this <laughs> as the last one. Right. Um, uh, but yeah. So let me just because some of these the grammar is just so terrible in some of these questions. Um, are you suggesting then, in a in a big roundabout way, um, that basically just living a healthy life is is the key because because there's, because there's so much there's so much talk there's so much talk about vaccination and viruses and uh you've made connections with um getting ill because you you're stressed um and all this kind of stuff it almost sounds as if we need to get out into nature more um stop eating so much junk food stop drinking so much um and just try and try and be more what's the word i'm looking for um i don't know what the i don't know what the right word is but less urbanized Maybe, uh, tr true to our natural selves and uh, respectful to our bodies um and psyches 
Right. But yeah, we, you know, we're inundated and voluntarily put all kinds of poisons in our body, you know, on a daily basis. Um, we expose ourselves to other unnatural environmental forces mm. and uh, we separate ourselves from the like elements of, of the natural world. Like we're not actually in, you know, on the land, like the soil and rock um, and, you know, in the forest and in other areas like that. Um, some of us not at all. And so if we get back to that state, we start to realize and because you can observe in nature how it heals itself and how resilient it is once the right conditions, the right balance is restored, right? Just like mm -hmm. even after a forest is burned to the ground, right? It actually comes back with more diversity and richness Yes. Um, after that, right? And so you can actually do things to allow your body to revitalize and rehabilitate and recover in the same ways. Um, and mo all that knowledge is in the natural world and mm. many, much of it has been captured, you know, a long time ago and we just have lost touch with it or it's been told to us that it's no longer valid. But, um, but when you see for yourself that people can truly recover from all of these things that, uh, you know, we're told are a lifelong thing or it's going to kill you and then nothing you can do about it uh you know then you you have to take it seriously and you know that's really what happened to me as i saw people doing things outside the medical system based on on the natural pathways of the body um that we can all observe and just get better from you know fully better i mean cured from things that i was told in medical school time and time again that there's nothing that cures it and, at, and so, at the risk at the risk of sounding like a lentil eating hippie, um, Professor Sukhred Bhakti has pretty much confirmed what you did, uh, what you said, um, and he's one of the most prolific uh, molecular biologists from Germany who said almost exactly what you just said to me. Well, it's great because I mean it's it's really crystal clear if you just uh, take a look and observe. Um, you know this interaction because there are lots of people who have taken this approach and and uh, they can tell you lots about it and uh, you know I've had this experience personally so it, it's not really far-fetched but if you if you don't look at it you'll never know about it and if you don't know about it then how can you question anything else mm. uh, you know which mm. is in the mainstream paradigm I'm going to uh, send you an email with uh, with the links and everything. Um, I might want one or two um, links from you because I want to add it to my website for, for those who are going to watch this after the fact. Dr. Andrew Kaufman, it's been, a, it's been an immense pleasure. Um, I really Thank appreciate you. I really, really appreciate your time. Um, it's, you're a wealth of knowledge and I hope that there are more people out there who would begin to think like you. Well, I certainly hope that people don't necessarily uh, agree with me, but, but actually do think for themselves and try to look at this material objectively and see what you think about it. And, yeah. and uh, you know, that's really the only way. And, but thank you so much for, you know, allowing me to talk to a South African audience. And, mm. uh, you know, I definitely wish everyone there well in my solidarity and dealing with all of the tyranny uh, yes. is certainly there. Thanks so much. My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas.